Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. Good morning. Welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and a happy new year to you as well. It's good to see you here today. Our call to worship this morning comes from Luke's gospel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Luke 11, 1 through 13. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. Do not bring us into temptation. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seeking, you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit 
to those who ask him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that we can be together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. You've made us able and capable of doing that through the spirit that you've given to us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the chance, the opportunity to honor you and to exalt your son, Jesus. Please bless our time together. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're opening our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 26. Something new happens. Jesus sends the 12 on tour. We're going to see a tetrarch that is totally perplexed. And we're going to see thousands turn up to be taught. Did you catch all the T's there? It begins with the 12 being sent on tour. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Summoning the 12, Jesus gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. The fact that Jesus sends the 12, we are intended to pick up on some signaling here, some messaging. This is a mission to Israel. Now, later on in Luke's gospel, we're going to see Jesus send out another group on tour. But he sends out 72 at that time. That's a mission to the Gentiles. Remember, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he went to that synagogue in Nazareth and he taught, saying that Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Messiah, the Christ, was being fulfilled right in front of them, Right from the very start, he spoke of including the Gentiles, the non-Israelites, in God's plan. It got him thrown out of the synagogue and thrown out of town. They didn't like that message. But here in Luke chapter 9, we see one focus of Jesus' ministry. He is sending out 12. Why does that signal to us that this is a mission to Israel? 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 are being sent out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Look at his instructions in verse 3. He says, take nothing for the road, no staff, no traveling bag, no bread, no money, and don't take an extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they do not welcome you, When you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. I'm going to pause there for a second. This was a a Jewish custom, kicking the dust off of your feet. When Jews were traveling through Gentile territories, and they had been in Gentile towns, when they left, before they, they would come back to their own place, they would shake the dust off their feet as a way of saying, we're getting this dirt off of us. We're not bringing this back into God's holy land. It was just the thing that they did. Well, notice what Jesus is saying here. He's telling his 12, his apostles, you're going to go to Israel. Go to the sheep of Israel. Preach the good news of the kingdom. And if there are any Israelites, if there are any Jews who reject the message that you bring, shake the dust off your feet. What's that saying? Jesus is saying that if they reject 
my message about the kingdom of God, they are rejecting the king of Israel and they are cutting themselves off from Israel. They might as well be Gentiles because they are not in covenant with me. They don't have a relationship with me if they reject my message. Treat them like unbelievers. Verse six, so the 12 went out and traveled from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing everywhere. The 12 were sent on tour. And as a result of their activity, the Tetrarch is totally perplexed. You say, what in the world is a Tetrarch? Well, we find it in uh, verse seven. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed. What in the world is a Tetrarch? Back when Jesus was born, the king who sought his life, Herod the Great, he was the king, the, the king that had been installed by the Roman government. He was a puppet king, but he was king over the entire region. After his death, the kingdom passed to his successors. But Rome did not regard Herod the Great's successors with great confidence. They didn't see them as being as capable as Herod had been. And so the kingdom was split up into four administrative districts. A different piece was given to a different one of uh, Herod the Great's successors. Herod the Tetrarch, this is one of Herod the Great's successors, and he rules over one of these four districts, administrative regions. Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead. That is John the Baptist. Some said that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. I beheaded John, Herod said. Can't be John the Baptist, can it? All of the activity that's going on by the 12 being sent out by Jesus, they're going out, they're casting out demons, they're healing diseases, they're healing the sick, they're proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, it had been Jesus doing these things, but now multiply that by 12. Herod says, what in the world is going on? Everywhere I turn, I'm hearing reports about miracles taking place. What is happening? Some people tell Herod, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Can it be? I beheaded John. I had him put to death. Can it really be John the Baptist? Some are saying that Elijah had appeared. Others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. Herod said, who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see, he wanted to see Jesus find out what all of this activity, what all this fuss was about. The Tetrarch was totally perplexed. Picking up in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. And he took them along and withdrew privately to a town called Bethsaida. And that's when the thousands turn up to be taught. When the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who needed healing. Late in the day, the twelve approached and said to him, Send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place. There's nowhere for them to stay. There's nothing for them to eat. Verse 13, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. 
We have no more than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For about 5,000 men were there. Some scholars suppose that the total number was not 5,000, but 5,000 men were counted. There may very well have been women and children in addition. Who knows how large this crowd was? Jesus told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them. He kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. They picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. Remember, everything that has been going on here has been a mission to Israel. Twelve apostles were sent out by Jesus to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, to heal diseases, to cast out demons. And now... The crowds, the thousands have followed, have turned up to be taught. Jesus teaches them. And then he feeds them. Again, if we were Israelites and we were steeped in the teachings of the Old Testament, which we ought to know better than we do, but if we were Israelites, the signaling here would be obvious to us. Just as the Lord fed the children of Israel in the wilderness with bread from heaven, manna, so now Jesus is feeding the people of Israel. Where did the food come from? He supplied it. He just kept breaking the fish, kept breaking the loaves, and he fed the Israelites. The message is clear. This is a mission to Israel, God's people. And the God of Israel has arrived. He's on the scene and he is doing miraculous things. And he's feeding God's people. If we were to turn to John's gospel, which we won't this morning, but if we were, we would see that the people who received the benefit of this great miracle totally missed the point. They followed Jesus later on the next day to the other side of the lake. They were seeking after him because they wanted another meal. They wanted to know, what do we have to do to do the work of God? We want to do this too. And Jesus went on to tell them, this is the work of God. This is what God's will is for you, that you believe on the one that he has sent. He went on to talk about that, and many of them left. Many of them departed. They missed the entire message. They didn't get it. Why was it? It's because they had different expectations. Expectations about what a Messiah would be. The word Messiah, it means anointed. It's a picture back to the time of the kings of ancient Israel. When God would call a king to shepherd his people, the prophet of the Lord would pour oil over his head as a sign that God's spirit was being placed upon this man to give him skill, to give him ability, to give him leadership so that he could lead God's people. The Messiah, the anointed one, the Jews were looking for the Messiah. The prophecies of Daniel that had been spoken hundreds of years earlier told that this was the very time when the Messiah would be revealed. And the people of Israel were in expectation looking for the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But what was their expectation regarding the Messiah? 
the Jews living at that time expected a military hero. They expected someone who was thoroughly human, a human leader, to lead them in battle. John's Gospel indicates that Jesus' teaching took an abrupt turn at this point to discourage them from taking him by force and making him their king, their anointed, their Messiah. Why would Jesus discourage such a thing? Because their expectations were all wrong. There was a telling distinction, a telling distinction in the way two different groups received or accepted Jesus. Let's look at it here in verse 18 of Luke 9. While Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now we already have an indication about what the crowds were saying about Jesus because Herod, the Tetrarch, had wanted to know the same thing. What in the world is going on? I'm perplexed. And some told him, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Others said Elijah. Others said one of the prophets of old has come back. Well, that's what the crowds have been telling Herod. And it turns up again here in verse 19. The disciples answered Jesus. They said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. And still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. That was the popular notion regarding Jesus. Who is this man who does these mighty works in the name of the Lord? Who is he? Oh, he's one of the prophets of old. Perhaps he's Elijah, come back at the end of the age. Maybe he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Who knows? That's what people were saying. But here's a telling distinction. Jesus asks his 12, But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the king. You're the one that God has chosen. Why is that such a distinction? I mean, weren't the crowds basically accepting Jesus as their Messiah, their king? Yeah, but they had a totally different idea about what that would look like. They were looking for a military leader who would free them from the yoke of Rome. Jesus discouraged all that. But even after, after that, after Jesus sent the crowds away, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the one that God has anointed and marked out. You're the special one called to do a special thing. Jesus at this point gives a terrible new revelation it would have been terrible to Jesus' apostles, and it was certainly probably very difficult to swallow. Let's pick up in verse 21. But Jesus strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one. To tell what? That Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell a soul about this. He said, it's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. 
This was a terrible new revelation that, frankly, it didn't fit in. It didn't mesh with the expectation that the Jews had. It probably almost certainly didn't fit in with the expectation that Jesus' own 12 apostles had. It didn't fit. Hold on a second, Jesus. You're the Messiah, but you don't want us to tell anyone? Hold on a second, Jesus. You're the Messiah. How, how can you be killed? How can you suffer at the hands of the nation's leaders? How can you fail? I mean, because that's what we're talking about, isn't it, Jesus? That you're going to fail? How can the Messiah fail? No, the Messiah is anointed by God, and he's going to be victorious. Luke doesn't tell us about it here, but the other gospel writers do. You remember what Simon Peter did at this point? He pulled Jesus aside and he said, Hey, Jesus, no, this isn't going to happen to you. No, no, no. These things aren't going to happen. Jesus, you've got it wrong. Let me clear something up for you. Imagine that, trying to tell Jesus where he has his, where he has his teaching wrong. But Simon Peter was adamant. These things that you're talking about, that you're going to fail, that you're going to be killed, that you're going to suffer and die. No, 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 not you, Lord. You remember Jesus's response to Peter? Do you remember what he told him? He said, get behind me, Satan. You don't appreciate the things of God, only the things of men. You can't even understand right now how this is part of God's plan. This is part of what succeeding and winning looks like in God's plan. To you, you're looking at it like it's failure. Oh, it's not failure. This is the path that I have to walk in order to accomplish God's plan for redemption of humanity. This isn't about failing. There's a little clue here. Right in the middle of verse 22, there's a little clue that Jesus is linking two things that in their minds would have been completely separate things. And it's easy to miss. Jesus uses a title for himself that is his favorite title to use. He didn't walk around referring to himself as son of God very often. He didn't walk around referring to himself as Messiah or Christ very often. Oh, he owned both of those titles, but it just, they weren't the titles that he often used. Here in the middle of verse 22 is the title that he used most often. He said, it is necessary that the son of man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. He calls himself son of man, and he does so in the context of confirming the apostles' assessment that he is the Messiah. What's significant about that? What's significant is for Jews in the first century, they would have understood those two people, Messiah on the one hand and Son of Man on the other hand, to be two completely different persons, not the same person. How is that? 
the Jews saw the prophet's prediction concerning a Messiah to be a human figure. This was a human, a man who would be a leader of the people, a military champion, a king. They saw son of man as being a heavenly person. This goes back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel sees a vision of one that he calls one like the son of man, approaching the ancient of days, approaching God's throne and receiving a kingdom. Son of man to the first century Jews, this was a heavenly person. They maybe didn't exactly know who this was, but they knew son of man. This was a heavenly person category. This was not an earthly person category like Messiah. The two were separate. And here in one sentence, Jesus takes them both, brings them together. He says, you're right. I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anyone. I'm also the son of man. I am the earthly man. I am the heavenly man. I am fulfilling both of these roles. Because I am a man. And I am the son of God. The son of man. The one who will receive a kingdom. As we round out our passage today, Jesus now moves on to give his 12 a test of total commitment. And you know, that test of total commitment isn't just for them. It's for us as well. Let's look at it. Picking up in verse 23. Then Jesus said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Following Jesus is a matter of total commitment. It's not part-time. Jesus was making that very clear to his 12 apostles. Following me? It's going to cost you in some areas because it involves total commitment. It's not 40 hours a week. It's not part-time. This is a 24-7 type of operation. You follow me. You lose your life for my sake in the Gospels and you'll save it. You'll find it. If you're ashamed of me and my words, if you deny me and you, you back away from my teaching because it's embarrassing to you, well, just understand when the Son of Man, oh, there's that title again, right? The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Following Jesus, it's a matter of total commitment. We need to remember that. What's the takeaway for us today? Number one, my destiny hangs upon what I do with Jesus. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They told him the different ideas that were floating around. He said, who do you say that I am? You're God's anointed. You're the one that God has chosen. 
our destinies hang upon what we do with Jesus Christ. We can't accept him as merely a good teacher, someone with some good sayings, some good words, some good insights. Jesus won't allow that. Jesus said, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm anointed of God. I'm also the son of man. I'm the heavenly man. I existed before space and time. Jesus is the one with whom we have to do. And what we do with him will determine our destinies. Remember in the past, we've talked about a continental divide. We have one here in North America. If a drop of rain falls on one side, it'll end up in the Gulf of Mexico. If a drop of rain falls on the other side, it ends up in the Pacific Ocean. Jesus is like that. He is the great divide in humanity. And what we do with him will determine our destiny. That's the first takeaway. Here's the second. My commitment to him, it must be total. All in. I can't be one of those people who's just hedging my bet. Who's just buying some fire insurance just in case. You pick up what I'm laying down? We can't be like that. Following Jesus is a matter of total commitment. You're either all in or you're not. We must be the kind of people who are all in with Jesus. Not just on the sunny days, on the rainy ones as well. He promises difficulty in life. And he, he, he makes this point about taking up a cross every day. It's probably going to look different for some of us than it does for others. For Jesus' apostles, in, in some of their cases, it was a literal cross. Each one of Jesus' apostles gave their lives for their testimony concerning him. We might not be picking up literal crosses, but Jesus invites us to join him and follow him on the way of the cross. It's a way of self-sacrifice. It's a way of laying down ourselves, our selfish interests, our selfish ambitions, laying them down, stretching them out across two intersecting beams of wood, nailing it there, and going all in to follow the Master, the Son of Man, the Messiah. And that's what he invites us to do in 2023. By his grace, we'll follow him better than we did last year. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Messiah, the Son of Man, who came to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we understand from your word that following this Master, following this Lord, following the Savior, is a matter of all-in total commitment. Father, we pray that this year you might help us to reach new heights in our commitment to the Savior, in our commitment to you, as we seek to follow him better, as we seek to love more perfectly, as we seek to grow in grace and in knowledge and in our relationship with you. May this be the year that we put down deep roots, deep roots into our faith, 
deep roots into our relationships with our brothers and sisters, deep roots into our relationship with you, which is based upon faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We have a race to run this year, and it's only just begun. By God's grace, we will run this race. We will run it well. We will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll put down deep roots with our faith, with him, with each other. We will love more deeply. May the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever. Go now, share Jesus, and show love. Amen. Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.